You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 20th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. My guests Joy Ladico and Marie Leconte discuss the souring relationship between London and Brussels as both sides dig their heels in over trade. Plus, as the UK government announces a plan to pull up the drawbridge on low-skilled workers, we debate how a government can craft a fair and sound immigration policy. And the people of the US state of Virginia are now free to express themselves in public with their choice of profanity. Also... For a country that seems so conservative and traditional to the outside observer, Austria is surprisingly experimental. We introduce Monocle's brand new March issue on all good newsstands now. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. Joining me here in the studio are Joy Ladico, the broadcaster, journalist and regular Monocle 24 contributor, and Marie Leconte, political journalist and author of Haven't You Heard. Now, it is probable, at the risk of sounding ungallant, that everybody around this table is old enough to remember when a post-Brexit trade agreement with the EU would be the easiest deal in human history and could be knocked over in an afternoon over tea and biscuits. Early indications to the surprise of everybody, except anybody who has ever paid any attention to any anything are that this may not be entirely the case. It appears surprised that the EU intends to stick to its established positions while Britain's government and yes, knock us down with a feather, intend to continue blaming everyone but themselves. Um, Marie, what has basically been the discourse this week? It It has not been dignified. Yes, they are. It's all been very, very dignified this week, by which uh, I mean that both the EU and the UK government has been have been posting different slides on Twitter. So it's been, I think, called a slides war. Um, but the idea is effectively that, um, well, the EU, I think, is getting mad at the idea that Britain um, is going back on actually what it agreed on in terms of um, the future relationship a few months ago. And the UK is saying, well, actually, no, we just want a Canada plus deal. Why can't you give us that? With obviously the EU saying, well, actually, you know, you're kind of closer really than Canada and also trade with us a lot more. So we can't just give you exactly the same deal. But more broadly, I think it's kind of just showing the teeth at the moment. It's kind of like the, the bid before the fight, if anything if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, Joy, is it is it possible, or should it be possible, to be almost impressed by, by Number 10 Downing Street and the, the, prince, the current tenant thereof uh, accusing someone else of saying something three years ago that has turned out not to be altogether true? Um, I love the fact nobody refers to him by his name anymore. And I, too, <laughs> just... I spend a lot of time trying to just not say his name in print. Um, it is extraordinarily hypocritical to sit down and say... Uh, the EU have changed their position when, if you look at what we've been doing since 2016, um, it's literally been a kind of ping pong table of British positions. The EU position hasn't substantially changed. They have laid this out over and over again, saying, yes, there is a Canada-style deal available, but, and Marie is right here, proximity is everything. And you know that, you know... uh, Trade halves as distance doubles. The most interesting intervention... Could could we move (coughs) the United Kingdom? 
Um, we could, we, we, I mean, uh, f- frankly, I think they would like to move the United Kingdom just, just in order to get this Canada-style deal. The most interesting intervention this week uh, came was not um, uh, the Prime Minister's speech in Greenwich last week, which was just a load of kind of bunkum and fluff, but it was actually from his negotiator, David Frost, who set out what the British negotiating position was. And having not really had a clear definition of it, Frost actually did it. He said, listen, the thing is, we are prepared to almost lose everything in order to regain our identity and our sovereignty. And therefore, the EU think they're coming to the table to negotiate. We don't want to negotiate. This is the state we want to be in. This is We know exactly what this position is. And therefore, we will approach the this from a kind of solid core. That's the first time that's happened in three or four years. So we are back, therefore, to, I guess, what we might think of as the blazing saddles gambit, uh, holding the gun to Britain, holding the gun to its own head, mm, threatening correct. to shoot <laughs> if, it does, if it doesn't get what it wants. Um, Murray, as you said, probably correctly, that there is a, a certain amount of theatre going on here. Um At what point is this likely to become more serious? And I guess the more interesting question is, when this becomes actually serious, is it likely to get actually more reasonable? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not entirely sure, actually, because I was thinking about, you know, the kind of EU's reaction, etc. And I think what's especially different now is that actually when it was Theresa May, you know, and obviously there there was a lot of, you know, showing the big guns and kind of shouting at one side and the other, etc., but I do think the EU had a sort of understanding that Theresa May was tied to her own parliament, was tied to, you know, different bits of her party. And actually, you know, she was sort of doing her best. Um, and obviously, you know, tying herself in unnecessary red lines. But still, you know, it was not just her. Whereas now I think that, you know, it is very much Boris Johnson, his government. They're the Brexiteers. They're the ones who wanted this. They're the ones who are now doing it. So I wonder if there's not going to be less time as well Um there's patience, I suppose, on the EU side, because it's like, actually, you were the guys who wanted this. And as Joy has mentioned, you know, have been going on about it for years and years. Um, so actually, we're not going to give you um, that much leeway. So I'm not sure it's really going to get that much more reasonable. But equally, um, Boris likes a fudge. Um, and I would not put it past him to actually agree to something that is not what Britain is currently arguing for. Oh. Um, but then somehow managed to say, and this is exactly what we wanted all along. <laughs> Um, I think Northern Ireland keeps coming off and on the agenda, but Northern Ireland is absolutely critical in this. We had an agreement. We have made an agreement about how those trade tariffs are working. Boris Johnson keeps saying there won't be any tariffs on the border. The EU is sitting there going, well, this is unworkable. And you are, by saying that, forcing us to put up a a border, you know, because it's technically Northern Ireland becomes the EU border. So basically you're reneging on your deal before we've even started talking about anything else. And this is actually the critical issue for them, which is to define their borders. And that will take precedence over anything, any sort of trade talks that are going to go on defining that border. Uh, Murray, is it... I'm just wondering if it's going to become part or important to the dynamics of these discussions, the degree to which the, the rest of the EU might just be kind of past caring. Because while the last four years Britain has been... Can you run around like a headless chicken while holding a gun to your own head? How would a chicken even hold a gun? It's not going to work. But you, 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 you get what I'm saying. The EU has actually been making plans and thinking about how this is all going to work, whereas the United Kingdom has not yet really decided what it actually wants. Is the UK at this point overestimating how interested the EU still is in any of this? 
I do think so, and I think um, it was quite absurd, even so, you know, as much as like two two years ago, talking to people in Westminster who said, well, clearly, you know, the EU do not want us to leave, they're desperate for us to stay, and, you know, they're obsessed with us. But then, you know, so you'd go to Brussels, and actually, and I remember going to a conference in Brussels where every time the word Brexit was mentioned by someone, there was <laughs> audible groaning from the audience, and I tried to do a piece actually talking about, you know, what do Bre- Brussels insiders think about Brexit, and people glared at me for daring to mention it, you know, they were already really that past caring about two years ago. So I think that now it is very much a case of, and again, you know, and the fact that it is Boris Johnson, not Theresa May, saying, OK, you know, fine, fine, for the love of God. Um, <laughs> so so I, I think the frustration will certainly become worse. I think Angela Merkel, the sort of, the sort of slow winding down of Angela Merkel, who has indeed been the very reasonable boy, voice in this and has collectively tried to get a deal, you know, she fades from the scene and Macron t- steps up. It's all going to get a little bit more difficult. Marie Lacante and Joy Ladico will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bates is here with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. A suspected far-right extremist has killed at least nine people in attacks in Western Germany. The country's chancellor, Angela Merkel, said there were many signs that the perpetrator in Hanau had attacked people based on their ethnicity. Federal prosecutors are treating the case as terrorism. The Democratic Party's presidential hopefuls have clashed in a heated televised debate in Las Vegas. The billionaire Michael Bloomberg faced particularly tough questions from the other candidates. He was forced to defend his past conduct and his tenure as the mayor of New York City. And Australia's government has announced a wide-ranging inquiry into the causes of recent bushfires. The country has been battling hundreds of blazes since the start of September. Australia's unusually prolonged summer wildfire season has been fueled by severe drought conditions. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Joy Ladico and Marie Leconte. Well, let's move on somewhat, but stay with the subject of post-Brexit conniptions. The UK's government has unveiled its big idea for how immigration to Britain will work for those foreigners who still wish to gamble amid the unicorns on the sunlit uplands. Those workers who are referred to as unskilled by people who've never actually worked on a farm or in a bar or a care home will no longer be granted visas. Instead, a points-based system will enable skilled, it says here, workers from anywhere, not just the EU, to qualify for residency. Uh, Joy, are we really all about attracting the best and brightest here, or is this just placating those people who voted leave because they don't like foreigners very much? And who don't have any foreigners uh, living anywhere near them. Um, It is quite difficult not to have steam coming out of your ears over this issue if you are yourself the child of immigrants or, like Marie, an immigrant. um, I'm another one. You you are (coughs) out Outrounded, Sorry, you are outrounded, yeah. outnumbered around this table by foreigners who have come over here yeah. and are making all your current affairs podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> We're, well, you're you're a skilled worker, or are you a skilled worker? <laughs> um, so yes, it is meant to be placating a certain section of the population, and arguably. A country does have a right to control who comes in and out. Otherwise, how do you define what a border is and how do you Mm -hmm. define what a country is? Um, However, uh, and this point has been made by many people, you are basically condemning British people to a life of uh, stacking shelves in supermarkets because those are the jobs that they can fill easily. Whereas anybody in the supposedly skilled professions like ours or in finance or law uh, have a huge amount of international competition. So the money... The, you know where the where the real money is made in this country now becomes kind of European or international money, and the you know we've spent all this money on education, 
in order to tell people to literally go and clean toilets. The other weirdness of this, Mari, is it strikes me that your actual xenophobia is probably going to be just as, if not more, upset by, I'm plucking examples at random, Malaysian physicists than as Bulgarian plumbers. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. And as Joy pointed out as well, it feels like a slightly odd message to send of saying, actually, you know, all the terrible jobs, guys, you can finally have them. Brexit has happened. You can have all of those terrible jobs. But yeah, the great ones, we will bring in the foreigners for that. Thank you very much. Um, but also, I think, you know, one of the problems we're going to have with the new rules that the current salary, so I think it's £26,500 a year is the minimum salary to um, to get enough points uh, to move to the UK. Um, in a lots of places of Britain, that is, you know, that salary is not realistic. We've already had quite a few politicians from Scotland, Northern Ireland, um, for example, saying actually, you know, this is going to be really bad for us. This is basically about are. looking after London, isn't it? Well, yes, <laughs> effectively, yes. Like many other things, like like most things, really. Except it doesn't look after London. So one of the hardest hit industries is going to be hospitality, where people turn up on spec to get a job as a waiter a bar, a, in a bar or as a barista. Uh, they will still not be making that salary threshold. Their employer is very unlikely to be sitting there apply, you know, asking for foreigners to come in to staff those places. Part of the kind of, you know, when you do kind of listings of, you know, the best cities to live in the world, and lots of people will say London, it is because we've got this incredibly kind of thriving cultural and cafe society going on. Mm. I've literally no idea how we're going to fill up those jobs. And I come from kind of, you know, my father has a cafe restaurant. I've watched this over 20 or 30 years of where he sourced his staff. The British, pe- British people do not turn up asking for those jobs. They never have. And I doubt they ever will. pret stats are, you know... For every 50 applicants, one is a Brit. Murray, is there a way that a a system like this could actually be made to work? As Joy said, it's it's not an unreasonable position for a given country to take that we will decide who comes here, um, that we won't just leave it up to people. We'll figure out what we actually need, where our shortages are, and proceed from that assumption. Can it be made to work without it all getting a bit xenophobe well, I'm not really sure, but I think it's also the wider problem of... It's it's all well and nice to say, you know, we we only want the brightest and the best. But actually, you know, let's say, you know, now I'm going to take journalism as, as an example because talk about what you know. But a lot of people, you know, if you're already a successful journalist um, elsewhere in your, in your 40s or something, you know, why would you, and quite well paid, why would you move then? You're probably a lot more likely to actually want to come to the UK as quite a young person and actually maybe get quite a low paid job for a while. And that can apply to the arts as well, culture, many other careers. This, this, you this, move here. This, and then this, you is, build a this is, well, this is what I did. <laughs> it is what I did as well. Um, but, but you know, I think, you know, in lots of areas, actually, people are a lot more likely to want to move here quite young, try to make it, work really hard and, you know, quite bad jobs and then eventually go up and, you know, and even maybe create, like, launch their own company, lots of companies. I think one in seven, um, I can't remember the exact stats, but basically migrants um, are more likely than British-born people to launch their own companies and be entrepreneurs. Um, so, again, you know, like, just picking the brightest and the best feels like it's missing out entirely on the, on the, on the context of actually you kind of need your country to be an attractive place for foreigners um, in order to attract those people in the first place. You can't just sort of like, you know, handpick them, I think. It's also, I think, a reasonable observation that you don't really or you really don't want to live in the kind of country that people from elsewhere don't want to move to. Um, But Joy, just looking at the politics of this from the Conservative Party's point of view, and they doubtless have been told all the reasons why this may have effects other than the ones they intend. What are the base politics of this from their point of view? Why do they think this is a, a good thing to be floating? OK, well, so this is the goes back to the kind of natural schism in the argument about Brexit. It goes two ways. 
One is that we're a highly international, fluid economy, like, say, Singapore or Dubai, which actually involves not just the movement of capital, uh, your trading port, uh, but it's also the movement of people, those who come and go create the business connections. That's one version of Brexit. The other version of Brexit is the Little England Brexit, where we want to pull up the borders. We don't want to spend our entire time in negotiation with the EU. We don't want to have their goods coming here. We don't want their carpenters coming here. Now, I was saying to Marie before the show, there feels like there's some deep instability at the moment in government. It feels like the whole thing might just collapse at any point in time because you've got the two tension points heading completely in opposite directions. So one policy, Boris can stand up and say global free trade, while at the same time giving exactly the opposite message. Uh, What are the base politics of it? Will people be happier? No, I mean, I think in time, the answer is no, because actually our lives will all begin to diminish because we don't have, we're a country almost at full employment. Suddenly, we will find it much harder to source the people we need to find. The costs will begin to go up. And it's generally a downward spiral. If you're a real conservative, you're actually a kind of free marketeer. So hmm. you believe that Labour will arrive when there is a gap and leave when it's gone, which is what happened with the polls. Well, let's look finally on the news panel at the US state of Virginia, the citizens of which will shortly be free, free at last, to swear in public. Cursing outdoors has been illegal in Virginia since 1792, as is reminded by warning signs in some popular spots distinguished by their red circle around and line through comic book profanity symbols and very, very usually by people getting their pictures taken swearing next to them. The host of this programme indeed is unable to claim that he rose above this puerile temptation (laughs) while visiting Virginia Beach some years ago. These signs will come down once the law is repealed on July 1st. Um, Murray, first of all, swearing in public, are you for it, against it? Have you ever perpetrated it, for example? Could you technically have ended up in the dock in the great state of Virginia? Oh, absolutely. No questions asked. <laughs> it's really bad because also, and I think, again, you know, being an immigrant, like I tend to swear. So I swear with people in English normally, but I tend to swear quite a lot in French. So if I'm stressed and walking somewhere and I'm late, I will just be genuinely swearing to myself. Do you, do you swear just... for different reasons in the different languages? I see. I, be, being a monoglot, I have no experience really of having sworn in a, in a foreign tongue. Oh, I, I think what I will say, and I take quite poetic, I suppose, that view of language is that, you know, when something is really, like when it's a really profound annoyance, something that's very visceral, only French will do, only the mother tongue will do. <laughs> and and which is where we get the expression, pardon my French, from, uh, presumably. <laughs> um, Joy, is this actually any sillier than laws of any sort seeking to regulate behaviour in public? I mean, ev- everywhere has them to an extent. What are the other laws? Well, for ex- I mean, say in London, for example, you can no longer drink alcohol on the tube in theory, though that doesn't seem to stop a great I, deal of people. I, well, I seem to remember the, the day that... Uh, tube ban, that ban came in the night before there was the biggest party <laughs> on London Underground and I was on it and there were people who kind of brought drums and were drinking and probably swearing as well um, <laughs> does it make any difference um, I don't know you know I kind of think that the sort of minor prohibitions in society are quite fun because you know if you it, if people can swear they probably aren't going to riot you know you, you give them something small to kick up against what I will say though, so I, I did look into it earlier and people did get prosecuted over this. Um, over the past few years, several people were, were arrested in Virginia for swearing in public. So they, I sort of read they, up on it, assuming it'd be a silly yeah. thing that no one implemented. Yeah, actually, because there, there's always laws somewhere, like there'll be some obscure statute that bans you from tying an alligator to a fire hydrant or something. 
But people did actually get prosecuted. But pe- for some this. people did actually get fined. Um, so there you go. Were they swearing profusely? Oh, so I, I did not read up on the details of each court case. I have to say, I'm very sorry. This is not, you know, adequate preparation. Well, I would, I would, sort, of, I would sort of say, if 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 if, um, if you're swearing as a kind of byproduct of an incident, and the police can't really kind of nail you for the incident, but they can nail you for swearing, <laughs> drag them in for that. But I would hope that the um, occasional, you know, damn as you stubbed your toe would probably go unnoticed. <laughs> is this one of those things, Joy? It's a, one of those hangovers of America's, you know, old school buckle hatted Puritanism. Here, is this one of those areas? In which Americans are just unusually and weirdly squeamish. Well, I was—I mean, I just always say about the Americans: you've got to, you, you must remember that basically the Puritans, the most puritanical of the English, got in boats to go over and settle in the U.S. So. The English at that point just began to, began to relax. The restoration happened. There was, you know, <laughs> men in tights and all sorts of kind of um, uh, very lush poetry. Meanwhile, over there, it's all very uptight. And I think we always think America is this great progressive nation, but it, it most certainly is not. I know they're big squares. Yeah, that's the French view. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and the Germans as well. The Germans who moved over there, exactly the same thing. And you get so, this kind of culture shock, and everybody's going to got to behave properly. See, I also, I think by and large, the Americans are not very good swearers. Their their accent does not really lend itself to a great many profanities. I mean, it, it, the the people of Britain and and Ireland, and indeed of my own homeland, Australia, are expressive and eloquent curses, but it just sounds weird when Americans do it. It, well, I would, I think I would say that actually Scottish accents are the best ones in terms of swearing in the English language, <laughs> with perhaps some Northern English ones as well. Irish, Irish oh, swearing, yeah. which I mean, basically it's, it's basic punctuation, the way we, we would use a <laughs> comma or an <laughs> uh, Underrated one, people with Russian or Serbian accent swearing in English oh. sounds absolutely wonderful. I always love it when a Slav, uh, particularly Poles, actually swear, uh, because I spent some of my teenage years in Poland um, and so I know all the swear words and they get quite surprised when they see somebody looking distinctly not Polish looking up at them every time <laughs> they say them Marie Leconte and Joy Ledico, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we unveil Monocle's March issue, our Austria special. You're listening to The House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, the new issue of Monocle magazine is on all good newsstands as of today. It's an Austria special. Our affairs editor and resident Austrian, Christopher Chermak, takes a look inside. Why does Austria matter? It's a question I've wrestled with over the past few months as we here at Monocle planned out an entire magazine issue dedicated to this tiny alpine country the country that my father hails from. And I didn't just have to wrestle with the question in private, either. I was tasked with answering it. You'll find an entire essay dedicated to the subject of why Austria matters in the affairs section of this special March issue of Monocle, which comes out today. Finding the answer has been something of a self-discovery mission. I may be part Austrian, but I only lived there in my pre-teens. So researching Austria for this issue has also involved exploring my own heritage. That meant looking at everything from the enduring relevance of its imperial Habsburg past to the way that Austria wields its cultural heritage on the global soft power stage today. And perhaps most importantly, at least for a political junkie like myself, it meant exploring the surprising lessons that Austria holds for today's puzzling political moment. For a country that seems so conservative and traditional to the outside observer, Austria is surprisingly experimental. 
In politics, its new conservative green government just might help redefine the types of coalitions needed to answer today's biggest political challenges. In diplomacy, its attempts at outreach to Central Europe could help bring a divided continent together. In culture, it's exploring ways to give classical music and theater a modern touch. It could be that all or none of these experiments bear fruit. After all, its new government could collapse, mediation role fail, and classical music remain stuck in the past. But its attempts nevertheless bear watching. Why does Austria matter? Perhaps because it's daring to mess with tradition. That's more than most countries around the world can say. That was Monocle's Christopher Chermak looking at the new issue of Monocle on a newsstand near you now. And that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Madeleine Pollard. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>